Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. Sci-fi writer William Gibson said, the future is here, it is just unevenly distributed. For investors, our task is to tease apart what the future might look like. And in times like these, when the range of outcomes widens, but everyone else is modeling an eventual return to the norm, we can do our best work. This is the fifth in a mini-series intended to help you look at possibilities for the future with more awareness of investment biases, more context, and easy-to-use tools. So today, Pip and I are talking about Stuart Brand's pace layering model. This model is from his work on the pace of change in human civilization, and it's from his book, The Clock of the Long Now. It's part of his study into resilient systems. Stuart Brand has been called the least recognized, most influential thinker in America. A tip that might help you use this model, though it is perhaps oversimplified, is this. When a company or sector is forced up the model to a faster moving but shallower layer, there's usually a destruction of market cap. So it's forced up into a faster moving but more shallow layer equals destruction of market cap. However, when a company or sector can move down into a deeper, slower moving layer, there's usually a massive creation of market cap. Think of telcos moving down from infrastructure and into governance and power structures, where the key competitive advantage is actually the power to lobby the governments they exist in, where everything moves much slower. For long-term investors interested in societal change impacting markets, this has been a great match for our work, and I hope it will stretch your mind and how it might apply to yours. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so Pip, today we're talking about another uh, change framework or tool that we use to assess change. And today it is Stuart Brand's pace layering model. And this is from, I'm holding my 15-year-old copy of Stuart Brand's book, The Clock of the Long Now. It has some nice images about this model. Um, but this is a model that is really about, I, he applies it to um, look at how you define a robust and adaptable civilization. And since we are trained and do our work in assessing um, the pace of change in society, this became really interesting to us and we immediately started to apply it to business. Um, so let's just talk about the model first. I'm going to lay it out. And to me, it always looks like, I don't know, layers of the atmosphere or like the earth's crust and then it goes out to layers of the atmosphere. So there are six layers and I'm going to start at the top and each layer, the size and the pace. So the pace is fastest at the top. We're going to start with fashion as an example, and the scale is the smallest. So it starts out with fashion at the top and then you go down a layer to commerce down a layer to infrastructure, down a layer to power structures or governance, it's also called, down another layer, so each layer is getting thicker, if you can imagine that, to culture, and another layer to nature. So the idea is nature is slowest to change and in the largest order, and fashion is fastest to change, but kind of skimming along the top. The smallest order. 
So Pip, where do you want to jump in on how we've been using this? I guess there's a couple places. One is to think about identifying where a particular company and their products fit in this model. And with that in mind, what type of strategy do they, um, do they pursue? So an example might be Nike, which starts off with one shoe, way, way, way back when, and they're clearly at the fashion level. And then they start to build a lot of products. They're selling shirts and they're selling shorts and they're selling swimsuits and they, they keep building out their product line. And now they're kind of embedding themselves a layer down and a layer down because a lot of, let's say department stores or different distributors think all of a sudden I need Nike to fill my shelves because now they have a hundred products. So that's a strategy. Our friend Mike Stick likes to talk about when you start off at a fashion, pretty soon you have to decide whether you're going to go deeper down and become more robust to more people, or you're going to geographically go into different areas. So with each layer, Brent, I'd like the, the idea of, okay, where are they? What's their strategy? How does it fit in this model? Who are the competitors they're going to bash into? And using a business analysis mindset, we see some things that initially we don't think of, like, Coke and Pepsi, really they are infrastructure to 7-Elevens and delis and all that that would find, in our terms, it's really hard to do business and conduct their affairs without those two suppliers. So I like the, just starting with identifying where they might sit and why, who their customer really is, and then what is the strategy that they're using relative to uh, Stuart Brand's model? I like that as a start. Right. And that um, leads then to the second one. Once you've identified where you think the company or sector is, then what you're really looking for, I think, is movement between these. You mentioned that Nike be able to being able to move from fashion down to commerce, and maybe some would say infrastructure, getting closer to infrastructure. And one point that we've made across time is anytime there's movement, either up or down, like you can be you can think that you are in the realm of commerce, but be thrust out of fashion, right? So if you're moving that way, there's a lot of destruction of market cap. But if you move deeper down into these thicker and thicker layers of the system, there's typically um, a huge creation of market cap. So that dynamism between these six layers is, uh, is what we're looking for. Yeah, I also, I like, with that in mind, I think of some of the gigantic companies that have been built across time. Many of them started at those top layers and they dropped down. Like when IBM started, it was an idea, et cetera. And then in 1965, they came out with the Series 360 computer and they dropped down into infrastructure really quickly. And then all of a sudden they had a lot of control. And if you're an IBM shareholders, you had while we have a pretty big moat around what we do, it's going to be hard to displace us, et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, the government sometimes steps in and says, hey, you're getting too powerful, in part because you start to infringe and perhaps becoming a power structure in business, and that sort of threatens other power structures. Well, that was one of the interesting points for me when learning about the telcos, and I remember you saying, well, the only thing you know to focus on for their competitive advantage is their lobbying <laughs> because they're <laughs> at the level of the power structures where that's the most important 
we would, I think on the surface, I would have said their infrastructure, like utilities infrastructure, but um, they're really operating down a level of power structures. This of course is interesting in the, in the um, context of some of the um, Facebook and Apple and everyone going up to Capitol Hill in the US recently. That's, you know, I think what they're trying to avoid is having to, um, they wanna be a part of governance, but on their own terms. So. In, back in our Berlin gathering of barbarians, which was, I guess, probably 2015, if I got it right, um, we had talked for a long time that Silicon Valley likes to create these big, gigantic, like, like, like they go to, what is it, elephant hunting. They like these gigantic things that might overnight become like infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And we had seen that happen out of nowhere with Google. Like the internet created a whole different like orientation around what things might develop that could become this infrastructure. Like it'd be hard to live life for a lot of people without Google. And then Facebook comes along and then Amazon comes along. And then, so they kind of hit this infrastructure really quickly. We had a board of directors exercise in Berlin. And what came out of it was that each of those massive new entities that became infrastructure seemingly overnight in any kind of context of business and had these massive market caps to show, they were going to have to be sensitive in how they moved from becoming infrastructure into power structures, but they're on their way to doing it. They're kind of global entities that can't easily be wrestled down in the way maybe a company could have been 50 years ago. So that, that threat between the infrastructure and the power structures, we also see that, Brandon, I think, how people are using ESG to ask, ask businesses to lead the way because governments have been you know, so reduced in some confidence level of getting the job done of like leading and advancing us, as Erwin Kula said. So it's really interesting to see that dynamic of these massive entities steadily becoming power structures. And frankly, it's a little mm -hmm. bit scary to me and many other people. When we start talking about elections being tilted by Facebook, it's like, oh my God, mm -hmm. never, never would have put that together 20 years ago. Right. What, yeah, one way I think that I've uh, used this tool as an analyst is to think about it um, around conviction level. So the deeper you are um, into the model, um, the more your thesis, I think the more you can put behind it in terms of conviction, um, if you can really understand if they're moving from commerce to infrastructure or um, have a great place in infrastructure. And then another um, like shortcut that we've talked about on this is um, to just look at customer retention rate and also how that's moving, if it is. Um, we've talked about some of the, um, the telcos here and even cable companies in the old days and how uh, they would really trap, they still trap their users. <laughs> and so their retention rates were pretty high but it wasn't because of um, you know, customer satisfaction. It was because of something totally different. Um, yeah, if, if I went back like 15, 20 years ago, and we wrote about this um, a week or two ago, the words that we on Wall Street in the investment world would use would be owning customers, yeah. like locking in and mm -hmm. all these type of words, which are very like, I don't want to be trapped or locked in. And I certainly don't want my eyeballs to be captured or things like that. But that's what we were rewarding 
And it's this fine line of you want to generate power as organizations. And then the tipping point, like, do you abuse that power and suddenly you're just feeding yourself? Oftentimes at the power structure level, you've gotten to the point where you're so in quotes, stable or resilient, that it's just a food fight internally inside of that power structure. So I think that's part of the complaint about government. Mm -hmm. You don't see that as much about some scrappy little startups that's selling handbags on Etsy. They don't have time to do that. Either they're going to be make the fashion level or they're not. Mm -hmm. It's as you sink down in that all of a sudden things don't change. And that, that can be a very durable, in quotes, business. But oftentimes it's not based on you know, serving the client very well. So it's a little bit of a struggle. I was thinking, Bryn, that right now what seems to be taking place is we always look for either the emergence, the quick emergence, or the discontinuity at the infrastructure level. So we had mentioned mm -hmm. things like Amazon and Google becoming infrastructure really, really quickly in any historical time frame. It's incredible. And at the same time, now we're in a situation where we're, we're kind of living in the bardo, as Corey wrote, that a lot of our norms of just how we do business, all of a sudden, for we think temporarily, aren't available to us. Uh, two of our friends in the software industry came to us, as Bryn knows, in March, and said very quickly and said, hey, how do we keep our sales funnel going and moving along and progressing when we can't actually see anyone in person. Can you help us think about that? And part of the thing that we said is people set, tend to use in person as a crutch, but these norms of how business are, cons are, are mm -hmm. accomplished are really, really deep seated. Whether you're going into an office space or whether you're traveling to see the clients, these are norms that effectively are infrastructure and now they're being tampered with. Um, even globalization, the idea, which is one of our 10 unavoidable ideas for like the last thousand, 2000 years, people have moved outward, outward, outward. Does potentially deglobalization of supply chains, imagine the ripple effects there. I mean, it's one thing if Zara goes out of business or little ripple effect, but all of a sudden you say, you know, business travel is going to be cut by 50% inside of three years on a trend line basis or something like that. That's a massive discontinuity at effectively what is infrastructure and the ripple effects in the system could be absolutely enormous. So I kind of try and think about, when I think about discontinuity or emergence, is it at a level that's very, very deep inside the Stuart brand model, almost like an unexpected revolution one way or the other? Stuart Brand wrote, the combination of fast and slow components makes the system resilient, along with the way the differently paced parts affect each other. Fast learns, slow remembers. Fast proposes, slow disposes. Fast is discontinuous, slow is continuous. Fast and small instructs slow and big by accrued innovation and occasional revolution. Slow and big controls small and fast by constraint and constancy. Fast gets all our attention, slow has all the power. All durable, dynamic systems have this sort of structure. It is what makes them adaptable and robust. As we search to identify what is most adaptable and most robust in this time of change, I hope this 
brief introduction to Stuart Brand's model is helpful. Thanks for listening.